I have been sitting at this pool for 15 years and it really stinks. I'm sitting here with a lot of other people. Some don't have any legs, some can't see. We're all pretty miserable. People don't care about us. We're all alone. This pool is disgusting. They don't chlorinate it anymore. Sheep drink out of it. They poop in it. The dung haulers don't come anymore. It's gross. Nobody in their right mind would want to lay here by this filthy, disgusting cesspool. But here I am every day. It's just gross. I go to the pool every day because there's this rumor that when the water gets stirred up, the first person in gets healed. I don't know if I believe this or not, but it's worth a chance. I mean, it's like playing the lottery. It's worth a chance. I would do anything to get healed, short of killing somebody. I would, I would go in that water if I could get in first, but it's hard to be first. I need somebody to help me in. A while ago, after the last feast in Jerusalem, it was really weird. This guy named Jesus came up to this guy who'd been laying there for 38 years and was talking to him. Nobody comes up and talks to us. They ignore us. And he actually took the time to talk to this fella. I happened to overhear their conversation. And Jesus said to the man, would you like to get well? And the man was whining and said, no one will help me into the pool. And Jesus said, do you want to get well? And the guy kept saying, no one will help me into the pool. And finally, Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. And so that's what the guy did. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, why this guy would pick up that dirty, stinky, filthy mat that he'd been laying on for 30 years plus, but he, that's what he did. And he was healed. Now, I've seen a lot of crazy things in my day, but you wouldn't believe this. This guy got up and walked. I'm still thinking about this guy. I'm really happy for him. He's very lucky. But I can't help but ask him, why doesn't God heal me? Those of you who are Fellowship of Faith veterans, you've been around the block here for several years. You may remember Amy. Amazing woman who 
in so many ways encapsulates the heart and soul of this church. She used to be one of our elders. Amy's been fighting MS for about 20 years, and any of you who know the disease, it's degenerative. And she used to fight every Sunday to get here. She, she would drive, and then she shared a story with Andrew and I when we were filming how one day she couldn't make her foot move off the accelerator. Praying, dear God, don't let me hit someone. And God getting her home, but also knowing that her driving days were done. Didn't stop someone like Amy. If you know this woman, she's a fighter. And she has this strange, unspeakable joy around her that I think many others in the same position would be just crushed or destroyed by. So she moved to Uber. And every Sunday, and every Wednesday, and every elders meeting, and every other event we'd have here at FOF, you'd see Amy fighting her way in. And you know what Amy would do? She would uh, just like talk to the cab drivers and the Uber drivers and people like that, because Amy is an extrovert. You know, she's someone who, who shares her story. And I swear, I think more Uber drivers came to Christ because of Amy's car rides. But MS is degenerative. And that even got to be too much. You know, when it takes you half a day to get dressed and then you need a nap afterwards. It's just an ugly, horrible disease. And so when we were looking at John 5, which is a story about Jesus meeting a man who was called an invalid, this man who's been paralyzed for over 38 years, who sat by this pool in Jerusalem, hoping maybe around rumor or around superstition that if he got into this pool, he would be healed. I couldn't think of anyone better to represent that man and of so many others that gathered around that pool in Jesus' day than a woman like Amy. I love that last line. Did you catch what she said? God healed him. And I'm so happy for him. But why doesn't God heal me? Sit down with Amy and two things will happen. One, she'll feed you and she'll feed you a lot. Two is she will tell you her story in a very open, candid, real way. What I love about Amy's faith is it's deep and it's mature and it's tested and it's rooted in Christ. And because of that, she can be open about things that other people are afraid to talk about or I think are impolite in larger company. She's a woman who wants to be healed. She's a woman who prays for it. Maybe has resigned herself to the fact that it won't happen this side of eternity, but longs for it in her heart nonetheless. I think that Amy represents a lot of us in different ways. Many, if not all of you, walked in here this morning. Maybe that isn't your affliction, but how many of us have asked the similar question? Why hasn't God healed me? Let me read to you John chapter 5 today. Sometime later, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered you know, pillars or colonnades, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Now the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this guy who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, look, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let me pause there in the storyline. And I'd like to do an activity with you today to delve into this and into the worldview that's going on here, that's creating the issue in Jesus' day, and there's something you can do to help me out please take out your phone. Now, we are gonna put a survey on the screen. And it's a survey that we are gonna take in real time right now. And the way that you do this is simple. Text F Faith, that's not a misprint. F Faith 985. No, we don't get to choose our own number, all right? So, text F Faith to nine, uh, Faith 985 text that to 22333, okay? Take a moment and do that, if you will. Now, it should bring you to a field. It should be open and leave it there just for a moment. Now, we're gonna do a practice question before we do the real question, just so we can make sure that we all know what we're doing and get accurate results when it counts. Does that make sense? 
Here's the practice question that I'd like you to answer this morning. We'll put it here on the screen. The practice question is this. Is Christmas coming too soon? Now, if you think Christmas is coming too soon, you are just going to type A, which, oh my gosh, you're already doing, and if you don't think it's coming too soon, B. And you can see that it's kind of changing in real time as people are taking the survey. So we're gonna give this about 10 seconds for all of you to vote. You don't type yes or no, you just type A or B. Is Christmas coming too soon? Yes or no? Oh, we're really dancing that 42, 43 mark. Someone's just, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. We'll give it five, four. Someone's saying no. No, are you saying no that Christmas is not coming too soon? You've got to type it in. You can't tell me verbally. Yes or no, A or B, is Christmas coming too soon? Okay, here's our spread, or at least pretty darn close to it. It looks like 61% of you know the mind of God. Christmas is, in fact, coming too soon, and about 40% of you are delusional. So, we see how the survey works, right? Okay, now that we've gotten practice with this, now that we know how it works, what I would like to ask you is the question that I think counts. Here it is. Is it okay to work on the Sabbath? What do you think? Is it okay to work on the Sabbath? As you answer this question, I will just talk into what happened in John chapter 5 where Jesus was condemned by the Jews because he worked on the Sabbath. We know that the Sabbath and honoring it is one of the Ten Commandments. And what it means primarily out of a biblical framework is that you shall do no work on the Sabbath, and yet Jesus is there doing it. What do you think? Is it okay to work on the Sabbath? About 83% of us saying yes, about 17 to 18% of us saying no. Most of us, it would seem, think that it is okay to work on the Sabbath. And if you go into John chapter five with that kind of mindset, you are going to miss the point, the punch, and impact of what is going on. For Jews in the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was revered. More than just an ethical command, it became an identity marker that, that differentiated them from all the other peoples that God had chosen. It was a way, if you will, of setting themselves apart and remembering who they were. I cannot overestimate with you today the importance the Sabbath carried for a first century Jew. Think about it this way, like an American flag. It is a symbol of who we are. It's something that instills pride, loyalty, commonality. It's something that we treat with respect and we don't hold lightly. 
And for someone to desecrate the Sabbath would be like someone taking an American flag and ripping it off the wall and trampling it on the ground. Now, if you have any sense of patriotism here this morning, what would that do to you internally? And if you could identify with that or any other symbol that strikes at the core of who you are, you can start to see a little bit of what it was like for these Jews and the Sabbath. And here we have Jesus coming up to a man, healing him, and the man picking up a burden or a load, his mat, and walking. These are things you don't do on the Sabbath because when you respect it is a day in which you do not work, but trust God to do the work for you. Oh, to do these kinds of things is starting to tread into dangerous ground. Are you with me on this? And this is the issue at play that starts getting Jesus and this man into hot water. And you might be sitting here on the surface going, this is a silly kind of thing. This is a silly debate. I mean, after all, it's just a symbol. It's just a day. But let me share with you why it strikes so much deeper. Now, I'm going to ask for some license here this morning and even a little bit of forgiveness because the only way I really know how to communicate this effectively is to do it through archaic language. And if you can tolerate a little bit of archaic language with me today, I think that what we're going to be talking about with the Sabbath is suddenly going to start making sense. There was a debate. There was a rabbinic date that went back to Jesus' day and continued beyond of how you deal with certain unforeseen events that may occur on the Sabbath. Let me give you a key example. Let's imagine for a moment that you own a donkey, as many people probably would in that time, like you own a bike or a car this morning. So you own a donkey, or to put it archaically in the language they would use, an ass. Now, let's say that your ass happens to get out. You thought you penned it up, but either the latch wasn't closed or some kid came on and opened the gate and he roamed away. But word gets back to you that your ass has fallen into a hole (laughs) or a ditch. But it's the Sabbath. What are you to do? Some would say you honor God first. Honor God and let the rest follow. Honor God and he will work the rest of it out. Honor the Sabbath because God will save my ass. (laughs) Others would look at the same question And on the other side of the debate, going, no, what God wants me to do is pull my ass out of the ditch with my own two hands. Are you seeing the debate? And if you're willing to go through it and identify it with it, now just a little bit more, you start to realize something. 
This isn't some just religious debate that exists in a theoretical kind of way. This is literally a debate about how God saves me. Does God seek my obedience and I trust my salvation to him in all other ways? If so, you would be on this side. Or does God empower and enable me and expect me to take responsibility for my own life and do what's in my ability, regardless of the other things that are going on, to get myself out of the situation? Are you now starting to see why the ancient debates are important? And when we scoff at them and laugh at them and think that they're silly and ridiculous, I think it's more indicting on us that we just don't know what's going on than it is on those who are dealing with an absolutely fundamental question when it comes to a relationship with God. And Jesus comes up and there's this man who's at this stinking pool and he's been there 38 years. And if you read some of the the text variant footnotes on the Gospel of John, it will say that there's this rumor that an angel would come down once in a while and stir the pool up. And it was kind of like last one in is a rotten egg because the first one who got into the pool would get some kind of like healing from the angel and maybe be able to walk away. Well, that's really cool if it's true, but it stinks if you're someone who doesn't have legs. How do you get into the pool? And Jesus walks up to this man and he says something and it's so odd to me. Did it strike you as odd as well? He walks up to this man and he goes, do you want to get well? I mean, think about that. What a stupid thing to ask. Would you walk up to a blind guy and go, do you want to see? Would you walk up to someone who's lost a limb and go, hey, do you wish that didn't happen? It's such a strange thing to ask, isn't it? Do you want to get well? But you know what's even stranger? He doesn't say yes. No, he makes excuses. He talks about why he can't. He deflects, if you will, maybe like the woman at the well deflected, maybe like Nicodemus deflected, maybe like we've seen everyone in the Gospel of John deflecting. I submit to you that maybe he didn't want to get well. And I submit that to you today because I've known people and had my own issues as well where people struggle with something so long that it becomes a part of them. It becomes part of their identity. They're actually afraid of what life might be like apart from the struggle or the disability. And somewhat like an alcoholic who hates the very drink that he loves, they find themselves in a place of on one side wishing that they would be healed, but truth be told, afraid to let it go by. And instead of pulling themselves out of the hole on the Sabbath, come up with all kinds of excuses instead. There are a lot of ways we can save ourselves. God has gifted us with brains and bodies and people and resources to face many of the challenges that come our way. And I think God has given us them for a purpose. To in fact help ourselves. 
and to help other people as well. Sometimes we may be guilty of sitting by pools, lamenting our state more than doing something about it. But then there's a whole other set of challenges we face, isn't there? Ways where we can't save ourselves. Ways where we realize we've done everything conceivably in our power, that we are at our wit's end, we are at our resource end, we are at all reasonable limits, and we just don't know what to do. What we are facing is bigger than us. There are situations where we cannot get ourselves out of the hole. And Jesus comes to people like this as well with a power beyond a power that we have in our own nature. Saying things like, get up, walk. Which leads me to the second survey question that I'd like to ask you today. In your opinion, is someone's disease, whatever that may be, a result of their sin. A for yes, B for no. And it's evaporating before our eyes. Is someone, someone's malady, someone's issue, someone's disease a result of their sin? We'll give it a few more seconds to let you consider it. Yes or no. About 94%. Ain't no way. With now maybe a 9%, one out of 10, arguing yes. Or maybe you struggled in the middle with a maybe. What about the guy who gets drunk? gets in a car and slams into a tree and loses the use of his legs, would you change your answer then? What about the diabetic who doesn't change their lifestyle or take their medication and body parts start falling off? Would you change your answer then? What about the person who smoked for 50 years of their life and develops lung cancer? Would you change your answer then? Maybe. I don't know. But it does make you think, doesn't it? That it's not always as clear as a simple survey or answer. It's actually fascinating in the Gospel of John that, that the gospel will speak into it two ways. In John chapter nine, the disciples come up to Jesus and they see a man born blind and they say, who's sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus is like, it has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with their sin. No, it's so God would be glorified. It's a clear no. But here in John chapter five, it's interesting. After John heals this, or after Jesus heals this guy who's at the pool, 
When he finds him later, he goes, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What are we supposed to read out of that? The reality I think, or at least a reality we will at times entertain, is we wonder. Is this happening to me because of something I've done? Or does that have nothing to do with it? What I love in John chapter 5 is that in either way, we see a God filled with compassion who saves. But regardless of what side that we're on, don't we find ourselves with that lament? Why am I struggling like this? Why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't God fix the situation? Why doesn't God make it better for me? Why doesn't God just work it out so I'll be happy? Why doesn't God give me proof? Why doesn't God show me a sign? Why doesn't God do something to indicate that he's involved, that he's watching, that he's listening, that he cares? Why doesn't Jesus do for me what I read about in stories like these? It's all kind of getting to the same thing, isn't it? Why doesn't he act in a way that I think is right and a way that I think he should act? Put it another way, it's all kind of just a way of judging Jesus, isn't it? Evaluating Jesus, judging Jesus, calling Jesus to account. I think it is very natural for all of us whether you've been coming to church your entire life or you don't consider yourself Christian, I think it's natural for all of us to put Jesus on trial. But what if it's the other way? Let me read the rest of the story to you here today. We've seen that Jesus has healed the man. We've seen that Jesus made this audacious claim of claiming to be equal with God. And the story picks up at verse 19. After it says that the Jews tried all the harder to kill him because of these crimes that Jesus committed. He says, he gives this answer. I tell you the truth. The son of man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yet to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even the Son will give life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life or life of the age to come and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. 
I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, Jesus says, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept a human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp and burned and gave life, and you chose to enjoy his light for a time. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe in the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess life of the age to come. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Did your mind wander just a little bit? Sometimes Jesus gets dense, would you agree? And like any good person, sometimes Jesus is entitled to a rant. Did you hear it in there? The incredulity, the, the, the frustration, the just, I can't believe this. Going on before him. Let me explain what's happening in John chapter 5 to you. What is this speech about? Gary Burge, a New Testament scholar, actually has spoken here at Fellowship of Faith in the past as a man who loves John and knows his writings deeply. And he says that what you see happening here in John chapter 5 is a trial. That Jesus finds himself before the court of public opinion on trial. Let me break the story down for you. Give me the screen, please. Gotta switch it over, guys. 
let me verbally, there we go, okay. We can clap for that, that's okay, you don't have to hold back, yeah, yeah. What do we see in 5, 1 to 15? What we see is the crime. We're witnesses of the crime taking place. That a man at Bethesda is healed on the Sabbath. The man is then interrogated and Jesus is identified as the criminal. Where does it go from here? We see that the Jews condemn Jesus. The first charge is that he violates the Sabbath. The second charge is that Jesus makes divine claims and he is brought on trial before their court of public opinion. And everything that I just read to you fits in here. Jesus goes to trial. We see Jesus describe his criminal work. We see Jesus bringing witnesses to his defense, his father in heaven, John the Baptist. But then Jesus flips it and turns it on his opponents. Jesus instead chooses, rather than to give a defense for his actions, to indict their crimes. And he challenges any ability on their behalf to appeal. It's easy to judge the Jews of John chapter 5 from afar, but we do it every day. Why don't you heal me? Why don't you fix this? Why don't you make it better? What are we doing? We're calling God to give account. We are putting God on trial. But what if... What if, maybe just for a moment, we might dare to consider that Jesus is the judge of heaven and earth and we are not? And what if the questions that should be asked is not relating to Jesus giving account to us, but how we answer to him? And if you're willing to consider that for a moment, I think you'll not only begin to understand John chapter 5, but what a relationship with Jesus is all about. Because as long as we keep God on trial, we will never have the kind of relationship with him that he describes. As long as we keep Jesus on trial, we will never have that kind of life that he is offering. What Jesus does is not give us answers as much as invitation, inviting us to trust him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts him will not perish but have life of the age to come. Jesus comes bringing life and life to the full. And if the episode at the well does not evidence it, I don't know what is. He made a broken man walk. And he says it doesn't stop there. The very death that will take hold of us that we are powerless against, Jesus will give you life. You will raise from the dead. Did you hear it all in there? You think healing a guy at a pool is something? You ain't seen nothing yet. 
But it's not your place to evaluate or judge me on how I do it. No, I'm asking you to trust me. I'm extending an invitation to this life that I am offering of which this man at the pool is a sign and a taste, but as long as we keep God on trial. That perspective and the hope that comes from it remains at bay as we keep a wedge in the relationship between God and ourselves. Jesus is inviting you to trust him. There are many people who believe in Jesus. They believe he existed. Virtually every atheist does. Jesus is talking about something different than thinking he existed. He is inviting you to trust him with your why questions. Knowing that he is the judge of heaven and earth and better seated to ask them. There is this phrase we parrot in churches a lot. But as I was thinking through this, it came to life for me today. And I'd like to maybe look at it with fresh eyes this morning. Give me that second little bit of the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed, I misspoke, excuse me. If you've been a veteran here at Fellowship of Faith for some time, you've said it with us. It's something that goes to the ancient past, something that Christians have been saying is kind of their testimony and an expression of faith or trust, if you will, in God. But I want to hone in and just the second part where it starts to talk about Jesus. And I want to look at a line in particular that often kind of skates us by. Look at what it says about Jesus to begin with. Something similar to John chapter 5, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that he's begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. Feels kind of John 5, doesn't it? This one who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and made man, was crucified, allowed himself to be judged, suffered, and was buried. But look at this third phrase about Jesus where it says this. He rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and and sits where? At the right hand of God. Who is on the throne? Jesus, not me. Who is the judge? Jesus, not me. Who is the one that must give account? Jesus, or me. I pray you'll accept that invitation of faith wherever you are 
and your struggles in life today? That you allow him to be the judge on the throne? Trusting your life and your struggle to his hand. Please rise. Let's pray that phrase together, just that phrase. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Can we pray it again? And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. May that give you perspective. May that give you strength. May that give you hope. Amen. God came down. The judge of heaven and earth came down and allowed himself to be judged. Handed himself over to the court of public opinion time and time again, allowed himself to be ridiculed, dismissed, questioned, when he's the very God himself. And on the night before he was to be betrayed, he gathered his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them And more or less said this, look at the judgment that I receive. Wrongfully, but that I receive anyway for you. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took a cup afterwards and he gave it to them and he said, drink of this all of you. This is my blood shed for you. For the forgiveness of all of your sins, May I add your judgments and accusations. It's poured out for all of them. So come, respond to my invitation. Come and do this in remembrance of me. To this day, we continue to reproduce what Jesus shared with his disciples as a way of responding to his invitation still. We invite you to respond to Jesus' call on you this morning.